But we're going to look tonight, this is Journey Through Genesis, part 28. We are in Genesis 35, we will finish that up, we will hit 36 and maybe get into 37 tonight. We're making some, some tracks. And so I want to say a prayer and we're going to jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. All right, we are in Genesis 35. I want to start with verse 9. We've read some of this, but there's some detail I want to pay attention to tonight. Spend a little time on it. Verses 9 through 12 of Genesis 35. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. When Jacob finally got back to where God had told him to be in the first place, way back in Genesis 31, there is such reaffirmation that takes place. It's from this place that he's gone back to, Bethel, the house of God, that Jacob was to fulfill his destiny. This is where he will finally find his groove. God reaffirms to this man who he is and who he's not. You're not Jacob. You are Israel. Reaffirms that to him. He reaffirms to this man who God is. I am God Almighty. I can do anything, everything. God reaffirms his promises to this man, promises of fruitfulness, promises of dominion, kings will come from you, and promises concerning the land and the legacy. The land belongs to you and your descendants. And God does all of this at and from Bethel. Everybody say Bethel. I want to tell you, That Bethel represents the local church. Bethel is the house of God. And I believe in one respect you could say it is referencing the local church. People say, well, I'm planted in Jesus. And I don't believe in organized religion. And I'm not going to give my hard-earned money to that preacher up there. But... Let me say this, that when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, he said, knocks him down, and Saul says, who are you, Lord? And notice, remember the saying that Jesus makes to Saul in Acts chapter 9. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's powerful. It's poignant. He's saying there's a oneness. There's a sameness between the local church at Damascus, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, 
if you're going to be planted in Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you that you need to get planted in the house of God, in the local church. Life Point and other local churches are the Bethel. They're the place in and from which we will fulfill our destiny. You've got to get planted in the local church to figure out who you are, the calling God has on your life, to figure out who God is. He's the Almighty God. To figure out His promises of fruitfulness, dominion, what belongs to you and to your children. I'm not talking about just going to a building called a church, but literally being assimilated into the life of the church, where you are no longer considered an outsider, but you have been incorporated, absorbed into the life of the church. Can I get an amen? Let me be a pastor for a minute here. No judgment, just encouragement. Mark Howell says this, the church has to connect unconnected people. He went on, the reason the, reason the church's back door is open is because we haven't mastered the art of connection. The question is, how many of the people in LifePoint Church are actually connected engrafted into the life of the church. Again, Mark Howell says, unconnected people are one tough thing away from never coming back to church again. Now here at LifePoint, we worked hard through the years on systems and processes and infrastructure, if you will, to help people assimilate into LifePoint. But I would argue... It's not just on life point to get people assimilated. We have to, as individuals, agree to connect. And sometimes we kick and we scream and we buck and we resist. But we have to learn to let down our barriers and connect if we're going to get the life that's flowing through the church to flow through our own lives. Amen? Now, there are a number of reasons why we struggle with connection as individuals. Number one, we don't want to be accountable. Number two, we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to risk being hurt. Maybe we've been hurt before. Number three, we don't totally agree with the pastor, the doctrine, the standard of the church. Number four, we don't feel as though we measure up. And number five, we miss our previous church body, our previous local church, if we've moved to a new church. Let me address these real quickly. Number one, the first thing, accountability is a good thing. You need accountability. I need accountability. I need someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, where were you this week? Hey, where were you Wednesday night? Hey, we've missed you. Hey, how are you doing? It seems to me something's up in your life. That kind of accountability is healthy. Do you know what I'm saying? It's very healthy. Secondly, vulnerability. Love and community are worth the risk. 
if you've been hurt before, I'm so sorry. But you need love and community in your life. Let down your guard. Let down your barriers. Get involved. Number three, when you find a church that you agree with 100% with the pastor, the doctrine, the standard, let me know. Because I want to come visit that church. I want to see what it's made of. And for crying out loud, what you needed. I want to find it. Number four, if you think you're the only one who doesn't measure up, you got another thing coming. None of us measure up. People say, I'm leaving the church. It's filled with hypocrites. Don't leave. Please stay. We need one more. If you find a perfect church, don't go there. You'll mess it up. You'll be the weak link. Many of us miss our previous churches. Let me just encourage you. You can't recapture that environment. You can't recapture that season. Even if you were to go back, it won't be the same. Things have shifted. They've adjusted. They've changed. And guess what? They kept trucking without you. You know? And so I want to encourage you. At LifePoint... Being assimilated, being in the life of the church. How did I get all of this out of Genesis? I don't know. I'm a pastor, right? But the Bethel just got a hold of me. Here's how you're assimilated at LifePoint, from my point of view. You attend church on a regular basis. For crying out loud, you go to church. When the doors are open, you gather with the other believers. Go through Discover Life. We've got a, a graduating class this Sunday. We're going to be graduating some more Discover Lifers. we got another class starting March 11th, I believe it is. Go through Discover Life. It's, it's your own ramp, your gateway. Serve on a team. Get involved in a life group. Interacting with other members of the church. Don't isolate yourself. Worship. Give. Participate. When people come in and then drift away, it's usually because they never put down roots and they resisted connecting with the other people in the church. Maybe they judged them and said, these people are weird. I don't want to get involved with them. Well, how do you think we look at you, right? There's a lot of weirdness. It's okay. Get involved in the life, the life of the church. Let me tell you something about this Bethel, this house of God we call Life Point. Number one, God needs you in this house. He needs what you bring to the table. He, br- he needs your gifts, your talents, your abilities. And one of my jobs is to make you useful in this house for the kingdom of God in this time, in this place, in this house. Number two, we do our best to connect with new people. As a matter of fact, we got a bunch of new folks coming to pastor's breakfast on March 4th, if you've not ever been to Pastor's Breakfast, see Wendy, see Valerie, we would love to have you. Take advantage of those opportunities to connect. Some of you need to go through Discover Life, that on-ramp I mentioned, your orientation to all things Life Point. Go through it. And <clears throat> I'm telling you, you can find meaning and purpose for your life by getting vol- involved in the local church. Number three. Some of you need to connect with a life group. We work hard on building community. And one of the most effective ways we do so, I mean, right, Jesus, people, mission, 
the people aspect, that community part. One of the most effective ways we do so is through life groups. We, we have the quilters life group, right? That's spiritual. In here quilting, pretty awesome. We have the financial peace life group. We have the marriage life group. The rediscover life group, which means the go out to eat to cool places life group. We have the crave life group, dealing with addictions and issues. We have the young life. The young life. Put the def- definitive article in front. The young life. Sound like an old man. We've got the young life. We've got hyphen, pastor's prayer breakfast. Uh, and, and here's the deal. It's less about the content of the life group and more about the connections with other human beings, with other believers in the life group. It's about fostering community. Now also, some of you need to get involved on a team. Five-star, Parker, Usher, events, many others, yard, maintenance. Today, we had part of our maintenance team working in a bathroom, on a toilet, where he found a pencil. Boy, that's service right there, huh? Come serve on that team. If you want to limit your spiritual growth, then don't get involved. But if you want to thrive and grow, get involved in the local church. Whatever local church that might be, I suggest LifePoint. But get involved in a local church. It will help you. If you've hesitated, listen, there's no judgment here. Just encouragement. Get involved. And i got to say, I'm so proud of many of you. So many have just rolled up their sleeves and and just got involved. I I was bragging on Wayne and Marion. told Wayne Sunday, I was so proud of them. They rolled up in here, and they didn't say, you know, hey, uh, you know, if you ever think of something, let let us know. We want to do something. They saw a need. They got about working on meeting that need, and they've, they've been amazing at LifePoint, wouldn't you say? I know some of you think they're amazing. You eat all their food up. Just get involved. And, and let me say this as well. The, the bottom line is this. When Jacob got back to the house of God, back to Bethel, he got a revelation of who he was, who his God was, and God was able to use him. And check this out. He raised a Joseph and a Benjamin in the house of God. Raise your kids in the house of God. Teach them to get involved, not to back away from the house of God. If you'll do that, those kids will grow up and change the world. People say, I don't want my kids to deal with what I dealt with. Well, get involved in the house of God so they don't. Break that negative cycle. Break that legacy of pain and suffering. Get involved in the house of God. Get your kids involved in the house of God. And I'm telling you, they'll change the world. Wouldn't you rather your kids want to go on a missions trip to Europe than to go on a spring break trip to South Padre Island? Now, that's the real world right there. 
Oh, but mom and dad will behave. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Here's AAA bond right here. You just call them, you know, when you need to get bailed out. No, no, no. I want my kids saying, Dad, we want to go to Europe. We want to go to Africa. We want to go to uh, the South Pacific. There's a missions trip. We want to go serve the Lord somewhere. We just want to get a taste of this. You know what? I'm willing to work with you, kid. You're like, we're going and we're gonna make sure you're properly supervised. But I, I'm willing to raise money. I'm willing to sacrifice. And why would a kid do that? Because they were raised in the house of God. You see the difference? Raise them from that perspective. Raise them from there. Really, Jacob's returning to Bethel is a lot like the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Verse 4 of Revelation 2 says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, Jacob got back to the place where he belonged, where God first met him, turned back, did the first works, and God abundantly blessed him. Look with me to verse 13, verses 13 through 15 back in Genesis 35. Then God went up from him, <coughs> from him, excuse me, to the place where, where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. So Jacob consecrates this place. It's set apart. It's a very special place for him now. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Now this is filled with revelation. Filled with revelation. So just fasten your seatbelt. We're going to dig into this just a little bit. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Aren't you ready to get involved in LifePoint like never before? <clears throat> Rachel had a child, the one she had prophesied about in chapter 30, verse 25. Rachel is dying. She wants to call him Benoni, meaning the son of my sorrow. But Jacob stepped in and called him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand, or the son of my power, or the son who will inherit my kingdom. And notice, he was born in Bethlehem. Notice that. The son of my right hand, the son of my power, the son who will inherit my kingdom, born in Bethlehem. 
Any similarities? Any parallels? 2,000 years before Jesus, there was a tower called the Tower of Eder. It's also known as the Tower of the Flock. It was a watchtower of sorts. It's also mentioned in Micah chapter 4, verse 8. It was in the ancient city of Bethlehem, which was larger than modern Bethlehem, which is very small, and was about four to six miles from Jerusalem. It was in the middle of fantastically fertile pasture land. And because of the Genesis 35 and the Micah 4 passages, ancient rabbis believed it was at this location where the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would show up, would arrive. Migdal Idar is mentioned by the Jewish Targums, some of the Jewish writings, and is translated the anointed one of the flock of Israel. Thus, Targum Yonatan, cited by Rabbi Monk, paraphrases Genesis 35, 23 and Micah 4, 8 as, he spread his tent beyond Migdal Edar, the place, listen, where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. The ancient rabbis believed the seed of the woman would come who would be none other than their own Jehovah God who would reveal himself at the end of days and rescue them. They didn't realize how right they really were. Check this out. This was the watchtower that guarded the temple flocks that were being raised to serve as sacrificial, where, where, the, where the, uh, the flocks that were used as sacrificial animals, the lambs in the temple. These were not just any flocks or herds. The shepherds were not just any shepherds. They were shepherds who had been trained specifically for this royal task. They were educated in what an animal that is to be sacrificed has to look like, has to be like. It was their job to make sure none of the animals were hurt, damaged, or blemished. And the flocks were outside 24-7. But the ewes that were about to give birth were brought into this safe house, this tower of Edar to provide them a safe delivery place. The tower was ceremonially and hygienically clean, kosher, if you will. And when a little lamb was born, it was common for the shepherds to wrap the lamb in swaddling clothes to protect it from injury. Now, look with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. With that in mind, this is from Genesis 35. So look at this in Luke 2. In the same region, shepherds shepherds were staying out in the field. What region? The region around Bethlehem. Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks, those ceremonial flocks. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David, 
This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off. They found both Mary and Joseph and the babe who was lying in the manger. And seeing them, they reported the message they were told to them. But Mary was treasuring all these things in her heart, meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. These were those shepherds all this time later that were watching over the flocks where the sacrifices were being raised and birthed. The angel didn't tell them where to go specifically. It's as if they knew already in the city of David there's this tower of the flock where the lambs are born for sacrifice. And here is Mary and Joseph just obeying the laws of the land. We got to go pay our taxes. It's April 15th. It's time for the census and it's time for us to pay our taxes. And they go and there's no room for them in the end. He says, there's a place you can go out here, a stable, if you will, a, a cave perhaps, maybe a tower where lambs were born to bear the sins of the people. And they find this Jesus. It was extraordinary. God's plan was coming to pass. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. 2,000 years before Bethlehem, he's looking at Jacob, who is Israel, and, and this son named Benjamin, son of my right hand. And he's saying right there is where it's going to happen. My son, the son of my right hand, the son of the living God is going to bo be born in that same place. Listen, you can't outthink God. You can't stop God. No wonder the Bible says if God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, the, the odds are stacked against you if you're standing against God. God's going to see to it that his word comes to pass. He said, I watch over my word. I will make my word come to pass. Second Psalm says the nations rage and try to stop the word from coming to pass. But the Lord says, I laugh at the foolish because I will have the last laugh. I will get my word done. All this time, Noah, that generation, trying to stop that that mean old devil exploiting all of humanity. The flood had to come in, trying to stop the seed of the woman from being born. Here we get another clue in Genesis 35. Fast forward 2,000 years, just like the Lord said. How did they get to Bethlehem? It was just a census. Well, how did God know? Because he's God. And they're just trekking along. No room in the end. Well, you have to go out over here, over by that tower. And there he is born. John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Just amazing. This beautiful plan unfolding like a rose. Let me encourage you. 
He's got it under control. You just walk in faith. You don't stop trusting him. He'll make a way where there seems to be no way. And his beautiful plan for you will unfold like a rose. Are you with me? Isn't that cool? Verse 22. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, the, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. One sentence there. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. And it goes on and names them. But notice this ambivalence in Israel. Like almost as if he's given up on his son. He's gone too far. He just lets this go. Just this unexplicable ambivalence. Just kind of weird. And then verse 23. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now, verses 27 through 29, Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Jacob never thought he'd see his dad alive again, but incredibly, he does. It seems as if Isaac had suffered with blindness and other ailments for quite some time because years before, you know, he was blind and that's how he was tricked and deceived by Jacob. Isaac dies at 180 years old and Esau and Jacob, who were once bitter enemies, now work together to bury their father. Now, we're in Genesis 36 and... There's 43 verses. I'm not going to read any of them. Well, I will in just a moment, but uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing at all. Just two verses. It's the genealogy of Esau. And it's uh, just filled with names and begats and some places. Interestingly enough, though, in verse 10, it says, These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Rule, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. Eliphaz, Eliphaz. And then there's another verse, verse 33. And when Bela died, Jobad, the son of Zerah, uh, of Basra, reigned in his place. Uh, 33, and when, yeah, jo Jobad, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. According to some scholars, verse 10 refers to a certain man named Eliphaz, and the speculation is that this is one of Job's friends mentioned in the book of Job. Eliphaz, or Eliphaz, the Temanite. And then in verse 33, this man, Jobad, some scholars say this is very likely Job from your Bible. Some scholars are pro, like Chuck Smith. Others, like Boyce or Khan. I certainly don't know. I find the thought intriguing and interesting. 
because this is speaking, this historical account is speaking of a time 500 years prior to the time it's written. In other words, Moses wrote this looking back at things that took place. He wasn't there. So he's looking back 500 years. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So it could be, indeed, that this is Job and Eliphaz. Interesting. Fascinating. Now look with me to chapter 37. We'll look at the first four verses. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers and the lad with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, the fa his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So Joseph is 17 years old, and this cat is filled with integrity, something his brothers are sorely lacking. And when his brothers, we don't know what they did, but they were misbehaving. When they were misbehaving, when they were acting badly, don't know if it was lying, cheating, stealing, whatever they were doing, Joseph felt it was his responsibility to inform their father. How many of you ever had a brother or a sister who felt like it was their responsibility to inform your father or your mother when you were doing badly, right? Like it's, are you kidding me? Joseph was a tattletale. Chuck Smith, one of the guys I was reading after said, Joseph was a narc, right? He was a tattletale. Now, I mean, it's easy to criticize, but this guy was so filled with integrity that when he saw this lack of it, he felt like dad's got to know. Now, you got to understand, his older brothers were raised by a man with no integrity. But Joseph was being raised by a man who was being filled with integrity. He was different. He had been touched by God. He was raising Joseph from Bethel instead of raising Joseph from those other places. And so here he is. <coughs> Joseph just feels the need to go and tell on his brothers. And then, to make matters worse, worse his dad <coughs> made him a tunic or a coat of many colors. You know, this is Joseph's famous technicolor coat. But really, the idea of a coat of many colors comes from Martin Luther. This was a very difficult Hebrew translation, this word for coat of many colors. And Martin Luther took it upon himself to translate it coat of many colors, and it made its way into the King James Version and into iconic proportions with us today that we see this as a coat of many colors. But more modern translations and more modern scholarship, which has had more sources to rely on from the ancient days, say that this is probably a coat that was fashioned with big sleeves. 
I don't want to take away your coat of many colors. You want to hang on to the coat of many colors, that's fine. I'm just presenting a case to you. But it looks as if it was a coat with big sleeves, which indicated something. It was an aristocratic coat. In other words, the working man, he, he cut his sleeves off. You know, There was a phase in my life where I got T-shirts. The first thing I did was go get scissors. Cut off my sleeves, right? I grew up in the 80s. It was a big thing, you know. You go buy sleeveless T-shirts and whatever. So it, the working man didn't need those sleeves getting in the way of his harvest equipment or his dirt equipment. But the guy that was the ruler and, and the boss man, he, he didn't have to wear sleeveless. He's just barking out orders. Hey, you guys go do this. You guys go do this. He's the ruler. He's the boss. So he would wear big sleeved outfits, kind of showy. And so Jacob, or Israel, makes for Joseph a coat that indicates to his brothers, he's different. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. As a matter of fact, the Lord told me, kings are coming from me. And he's preparing his son for rulership. He's envisioning his son, Joseph, from the house of God as ruling and reigning. And he puts this garment upon him that is different from his old carnal brothers. Now, if he's trying to bless his son, I mean, that's a blessing. But wow, his brothers hated him even worse for that. So imagine if your old sorry brother or sister is ratting on you, getting you in trouble, and on top of that, your mom or dad is like taking that same kid that just told on you, say, I'm going to take you to the toy store. I'm going to get you anything you want, you know. I just want to bless you. You get to a certain age, we want to buy you a, a new car, you know. Like, we want you to, we want you to be safe. We're going to get you a Volvo, you know, like, we're going to get you a Mercedes so you're safe, you know. Your brothers can drive, you know, whatever, rattle traps. We're going to keep you protected because God's got great things in store for you. It's too late for your brother. Well, we got great things in mind for you. Man, his brothers hated him. They couldn't even look him in the eye. The Bible says they could not speak peaceably to him. They couldn't even talk without snarling and growling. At him, but again, Jacob was raising his son different. Israel was raising his boy differently than he had raised those other sons. What if we could get a vision of our kids serving God, living for God, walking in integrity, and we didn't think, well, my, you know, we always say this about kids. Well, they're hitting their teenage years, you know. They're going to go wild. You know what Mark Twain said. Remember when he said when a kid reaches 13, 14 years old, the best thing to do is put them in a barrel and then put a lid on the barrel and just give them like a little, just a little hole where you can talk to them, feed them, whatever. You know, just leave them in there for a while. <laughs> I don't think it's legal. I don't think so. But the thing is, if our expectation would change and we would say, I declare 
that you will live for God. I believe the devil's a liar. A thousand may fall at my right hand and 10,000 at my left, but it shall not come near my house. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You may stumble, you may fumble, but let me tell you something, kid. You're going to live for God. I'm believing God's got great things. Just praying those kind of prayers, declaring those kinds of things. Listen, and even if you failed as a young man, here's the deal. The changes that Israel made in his life, although, as we're going to see, these, these ten boys were scoundrels. But in their later years, they bowed the knee. They submitted to the plan of God. God did incredible things. It's never too late to start believing God. Start declaring some things. Start praying some things over your babies, over your kids. As parents, we have a right and an authority to pray like nobody's business. Devil, you're a liar and a thief. This, this is the, this, this is, these are my babies. I dedicated them to you. And I made mistakes. Forgive me, O oh Lord. Devil, my mistakes are none of your business. And in Jesus' name, I pray a hedge of protection around them. Keep them safe in the name of Jesus. They're going to live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. That kind of stuff, folks, that's very powerful. That's so powerful. And, and Joseph made some mistakes, youthful mistakes, integrity of his heart, just innocent mistakes. He didn't realize, man, these guys. I mean, we're going to see in this. Well, I, I can't introduce it at this point, but we're going to see where they decided to just kill him. Just kill him. Wipe him out. Just kill him. The beautiful thing is, though, in the same way that God saw the tower meter, all Edar, all those years back, and said, the son of my right hand is going to be born there. In the same respect, God saw the end from the beginning with Joseph and said, I'll take what the enemy means for harm, and I'll flip it on its head. And the very thing that he meant to harm, Joseph, Joseph is going to rise to the top. He is going to be that ruler with the big sleeves, and his brothers will bow the knee like we're going to see. He dreamed about. He was a dreamer. Man, I want my kids dreaming God dreams, seeing God things, having God ambitions. I want to do something great for you, Lord. That kind of stuff, it can happen in your family. Amen? Why don't you stand with me right now? We serve a great God. As we plod through these books, plod through these verses, the book of Genesis, I'm just overwhelmed at the masterful planning of the Lord. You know, there's the Calvinistic view that God's controlling everything, micromanaging everything. R.C. Sproul used to say there's not one rogue molecule, uh, molecule in the entire universe. He controls it all. Now, i got to be honest, I felt like I've had a few rogue molecules in my day, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's hyper-Calvinistic. I call it super hyper-Calvinistic expialidocious. As hyper Calvinist, God controls everything. And, and, and the truth is, I have a will, you have a will. There's a free will. It's like a railroad track. There is divine 
destination, destiny, predestination. But there's also this track of free will. And somehow God works it all together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. So he takes a train wreck like Jacob and a train wreck like his ten boys, and he flips it on its ear, and God becomes known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation of Israel is named after Jacob, who became Israel. And here we are. We are the Israel of God as the church. Turns it on its ear. Devil, you tried to harm. You tried to destroy. You tried to take away. And here's what I'm saying. What I've seen throughout these little, all these little verses here throughout the book of Genesis, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you may have willed and done badly on or somebody's done to you, God can turn it around because my God is powerful. He is the God Almighty. He is unstoppable. Can you lift your hands and give Him praise right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness.